On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Innovation and Leadership, where we interview Navy SEALs, venture capitalists, pro athletes, best-selling authors, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of high achievers as we can get to come on the show. Today's episode is going to be from our mini-series that we created with Corporate Alliance, asking top CEOs and executives and entrepreneurs who have had very large exits, specifically about their thoughts on leadership and people. Today on the show, we've got John Pastana. Uh, He... uh, very well known here for uh, being a co-founder of Omniture that was sold to Adobe. Lots of times people are high performers because they're also dishonest people, which then can can bite you in the end. So, you know, we've before we've had salespeople who who really sold a lot, but they did it by like, you know, kind of selling future product a little too much, right? Which then kind of makes it then harder for customer service people to support This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services and I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor it's because I use their service now I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way way cheaper but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all so I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me though the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. John, for people who aren't familiar with that, uh, before we talk about ObservePoint, can you give people some of the metrics or or why that was such a landmark deal? Uh, Sure. You know, so my first software company uh, was called Omniture, and I co-founded that with a gentleman by the name of Josh James. And uh, we started in 1996, uh, ended up taking it public in 2006, and then sold it to Adobe in 2009. And at that time, we were um, the largest, I believe, software sale in the history of Utah, which we sold to them for $1.8 billion. Well, I mean, it's been such a landmark deal that is constantly referred to in this market years and years later. I mean, I just read a Forbes article a week before last about some of the big companies in Utah today, and they're referencing, you know, back to the Omniture deal of of really putting Utah on the the market map. Yeah, that probably was that that article with Josh's company, I think was featured in that one, the mentioned Domo, which is Josh, my old partner's new company is called Domo. 
Yeah, I think it was Josh and Aaron Sconard at Plural Sight, and um, and uh, I think Ryan Smith at Qualtrics. Um, yeah, Dave Elkington, I believe. Okay, okay, I bet you're right. Um, uh, so, um, talk about what what happened next. So you so have this uh, landmark exit, and then uh, you recognize that there was there were still some problems to be solved in the world. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, immediately what happened next is I was trying to figure out who I wanted to be. Like, I think a lot of people go through when they have a major exit. And, um, you know, I was honestly trying to just even diversify some money, things like that, did some real estate. While I was doing that, I was also thinking about, okay, what could I be doing next? And that's where another friend of mine who had had an exit in a a company named Rob Seolis he was looking for his next gig. And so we came up with the idea of ObservePoint. And what ObservePoint is, is we're a data governance platform that, that basically helps people make sure all the mark, online marketing technologies on their website are actually functioning and collecting data properly. And, and I realize for a lot of listeners that probably doesn't mean much of anything, but In my previous company, we were the largest web analytics tracking system online. We tracked trillions of page views. I mean, so much data that's mind-boggling. And there's literally no person who's ever been on the internet who has not interacted with my old technology that I invented. And then uh, obviously with the team. And so in, in, in that process of tracking, when you have a website that has millions of pages and you're trying to put what they're called little tags on these pages. It's really hard to keep track of that. It's being implemented across the entire website. And so at ObservePoint, we've developed an automated system that validates that the tags are properly placed on the website, that they're implemented and collecting data uh, that people can trust, you know, because if you're an online marketer and you're spending millions of dollars on keywords, you need to make sure that they're, collecting that information properly so that when you see, you know, one keyword is performing better than another, you know that you can trust all that information you're looking at. So that was kind of, we decided to get together and, and do it again and, and, you know, not be honestly a little bored is, is what I was becoming. <laughs> um, and so just for people to maybe, you know, if they're, if they're thinking, you know, why do I want to go to observepoint.com and look into this? Help, help, help give the listeners just a little bit of context of once you have that data and you can have trust in, in that kind of data, what's an example of a decision you might make different as a leader of an organization or, or leading a marketing company or something like this? Sure. Well, in the online marketing world, it's really notorious for people to like present data in board meetings and places like that. And they'll have little asterisks with like excuses on why they aren't completely confident in this data. And normally those are implementation problems that are like the code got taken off the website for a little while. I mean, it happens at all the biggest companies. And so what happens is every time things like that start happening, you start degrading the trust in the data you're presenting to where you get to a point where nobody in the organization trusts anything that anybody's looking at. Um, But you want to be able to be responsive, right? You want to be able to, when you look at information and there's good information there, you want to say, you know what, we can make quick decisions with this information because we trust it. A good example of that would be, you know, if you did see that like a certain word was converting better than another keyword that you could say, oh, let's buy more of that. But right now, most people will see like if a word was converting at two or three times better than other things, they'll be like, oh, I wonder what's wrong there. We must have accidentally tagged that or, you know 
something's going off. They will not trust that. They'll instantly go into, uh, let's QA that and figure out what went wrong. <laughs> Interesting. Um, do you ever, I, I know you're really into books. Uh, do you ever read the classic, the good to great Jim Collins book? Yeah. It just makes me think of that Churchill reference of the office of statistics, right? Yeah. Where he want he wanted the real numbers, not anyways. Yeah, I always I always thought it was funny because at Omniture, one of the big things that was different about us, like when we looked at website traffic, we were actually tracking every single page view that was happening on the website. And I, I would laugh every time when somebody would be like, but Comscore says this. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's all sample data. We literally tracked every single person. This is not this is not statistics. This is just data collection. <laughs> mm. um, <clears throat> well, when you think about um, lessons that you learned from, from the roller coaster at Omniture, uh, how has that turned into, specifically as we're talking about leadership and people, what, what are things that um, you were able to do better at ObservePoint because of your Omniture experience? You know, I, I was excited to start ObservePoint just from the basis of having learned a lot and hopefully not to make so many mistakes, which is still depressing when I think about how many mistakes I make at ObservePoint. You'd think I'd learned by now. But, you know, I definitely have learned a lot more patience, which um, is a good thing. <laughs> I was actually pretty bad at at a, at a Omniture where, you know, we'd be working 24-7 and I used to always joke that the reason why we would beat our competitors is because they were sleeping. And um, and I've, I've learned a lot, you know, with especially with family and things like that. It's like, you know, sometimes it's okay to, to go at a, at a reasonable pace, even though I still like to push people hard. But I, I think I've learned a little bit that, hey, you know, it's okay. We can we can sometimes wait till tomorrow and I don't have to stay up until three o'clock in the morning to get this done, you know? Uh, and I think that comes just with time of learning that sometimes, you know, it's not as important as you, as you think it is sometimes. And, and that definitely, I think, helps with relationships with family and kids and wife and all that. Also, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, Skillshare. They're doing a promo for us. For everybody listening to the show, it's Skillshare dot com slash leader where they're going to let anybody get two months of access to their 18,000 classes for just 99 cents uh, at that code skillshare.com slash leader and I think for me one of the reasons that I like Skillshare and, and probably like the classes that are most attractive to me are the really high credibility ones like you can learn email marketing from MailChimp I mean these are the guys that make 500 million dollars a year sending email out for their customers They've got the data. They've, they're legitimate experts on the subject. And as I'm getting advice, I know that I should be building my list better than I am. That's the kind of people that I want to get my advice from. And, and you can get it right there on those classes. One last time, uh, if you want that 99 cents for the two months, it's skillshare.com slash leader. So thinking about um, the wild ride of Omniture and now, you know, hopefully the wiser, more experienced version of you. Um, at the new company here, ObservePoint, what do you feel like is one of the best lessons you learned at Omniture that that you've been able to implement now at ObservePoint? You know, it's it, I think it's a hard question actually. Like, I think of lots of things you know that I've learned. Um, I've changed a lot about myself, how I approach things. Um, I mentioned 
definitely have a little more patience in how I look at things. I've definitely learned, you know, about how to listen to customers a lot better, um, how to even simple things like how to price a product, you know, how to determine if there is a market for something. Um, all those things are things that I had to learn the really hard way before that I understand a lot better now. The surprising thing is even with all of that information, it's still just as hard, right? It's amazing uh, how hard it is to start a company, to get customers onboarded, to deal with you know, the interactions of customers, with employees, with just everybody involved and keeping everybody happy. Um, I, I joke a lot that it's like trying to keep a rock band together. You know, you're, you're just trying to keep everybody moving the ship forward, just keep the band together. And uh, that's a, one of the keys to success. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely like where we're at. I, I like the people that I'm working with and, and, and that's, you know, the key to honestly to any company. And, and I, I, one of the things I did learn, you know, at Omniture was to not tolerate jerks at companies. Mm. And, and no matter how much value they bring to the company, you know, maybe let's say a sales guy or something like that. If somebody's a jerk, they're just poisoned to a company and just get rid of them. Um, because it's funny, it's like a breath of fresh air when you get rid of uh, people who are toxic. Everybody in the company will literally come up to you and say, thank you, oh my gosh, the, Everything feels so much better now that that negative, you know, the negative person is gone. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and I, I want to talk about the sales book that that you've turned me on to here. Um, but I, I've heard something about that of like toxic numbers, you know, where you've got this high performer so people don't get rid of them, but they're not taking into consideration how much everybody else's numbers are going down because you've got somebody like that contaminating things, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not worth it. And lots of times people are high performers because they're also dishonest people, which then can, can bite you in the end. So, you know, we've, before we've had salespeople who, who really sold a lot, but they did it by like, you know, kind of selling future product a little too much, right? which then kind of makes it then harder for customer service people to support that sale because, you know, they, they sold the, the version that's three versions away. Right. And in the software world, it's like, look, sell what we have and you can tell them what that we have some stuff coming, but don't, don't sell them on things that we don't completely have. I mean, I think it's actually great to inform people of, Hey, here's our roadmap. And these are things that we're coming out with, but be patient and come with us. But sometimes I think, sales guys get a little zealous and they'll they'll sell a little too much vaporware sometimes which then gets the whole company in trouble right and everybody wants to make those people happy so we work our best to make sure that you know it does become reality but it can cause a lot of stress in a company yeah so l let's talk about this for one second let's you know sales is exceedingly people centric um this book how to become a rainmaker by jeffrey fox that you guys made mandatory reading <laughs> to sell at Omniture. What, what is yeah, it no, about that, was, that book? Yeah, you know, I mean, that was definitely a, a great book. And we, we, you know, we recommended that to our sales guys at Omniture. And um, I've, I've loved the book because it's so simple and I'm a simple person. And so I've, 
you know, one of the things I, I really like in the book, um, it talks about everybody's somebody, somebody. And I've always been a, even though I'm more of a product person, I've also, you know, I've always been a salesperson too. And I, I like to treat everybody like they're my friend and family. And when you, when you treat everybody like they're somebody, somebody, you're treating them like they're important, whether they're the waiter at your table or whether the CEO of Apple, you know, I, I honestly wouldn't treat my waiter any differently than I would the CEO of Apple. And, and I think that, you know, brings a positive energy to the company. You know, everybody knows that they're important. Everybody knows that you care about them. And, and it makes it so that just the, I think overall people are very positive in the business and it makes them want to work hard for you. Um, and then obviously your customers know that you actually care about them too. And that, you know, you're doing things, um, for the right reasons. I, it's funny. I, even though I charge a lot of money for a lot of my products, I, I never put that first. I, um, I just know that if I can make a customer happy and bring them tremendous value, they, they will want to pay me a lot of money for what I'm doing. And, and the same, you know, and I think that principle in that book applies there too, where, um, you know, when you're treating them well, treating them like their family and you're just over delivering for them, that ends up with great results. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it would apply anywhere in your life. I mean, you and I are both members of the corporate alliance groups, the C4 group. Um, have you seen anybody there that you feel like, um, by being that way, it was able to build a friendship that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, I've met a lot of great people, uh, through the C4 group. Um, I've some super, some now my super close friends. Um, you know, I've always been impressed with almost everybody there on how they, they're always so friendly and treat people. Um, I think sometimes that's probably, I don't, I don't know if they're like that to everybody, you know, because lots of times I do realize that because of who I am in the community, lots of times people are just nice to me no matter what. Um, but but I, I definitely, I think most of them are actually pretty decent people. Uh, one of my really good friends that I've made out of it is uh, James Bullington. Um, and, you know, just such a genuine person and and I've, I've enjoyed, even though getting to know him, even though he's actually in real estate, right? And where I'm in software, there's still been a lot of things that I've learned from him because as I see how he, he's a great networker and he cares and, and know, gets to know people, right? And uh, have watched him, like he, he, he holds a golf tournament for a lot of his friends each year. And, and, and so I, I've been inspired by watching people like that. When you think about his approach, I mean, it seems like almost anybody in in real estate would claim to be a per people person and would yeah. claim that I wouldn't treat the CEO of Apple different, right? Um, yeah. What do you think it is in his case that he's able to deliver on that ideal? Well, I do think it comes very naturally for him. And that is, uh, I think, an important thing in life to understand your personality traits and what comes naturally to you. Um. I don't know if you've read the book Strength Finder. Love it. I, I'm a huge believer in that, that don't worry about your weaknesses. Understand your strengths and how you can contribute. So um, I, I do own quite a bit of real estate and some apartment complexes. 
And we actually use strength finder tests to when we hire our managers because we've determined what skill sets a successful manager have. And we make sure that any of our managers that we're hiring have the necessary people skills to be an apartment complex manager. Because you can imagine that that can be a, a hard task, right? Because you're dealing with a lot of emotional people uh, when it's their living situation, right? And um, and so I do think, you know, somebody like a James Bullington who does great at real estate, a lot of those characteristics of being a networker for him uh, come very naturally. You know, I, uh, when I'm, when I'm pitching that book to people or clients that I'm trying to get to read it, right. I talk about Michael Jordan didn't make much money playing baseball. Why don't we help you find out what your basketball is so we can have you spend a lot of time doubling down on your basketball. No. And it, it's so true. And so many people, it's like our society doesn't do that for some reason. Our society is all about understand your weaknesses and work on them. It's like so crazy and backwards. Um, if everybody just really focused on what they're great at, somebody else will fill in your weaknesses. It's actually how I've hired my entire company. So my business partner, Rob Seolis, is a wonderful individual. And he is a great organizer and keeping, you know, he's kind of the captain of the ship, right? And I'm totally ADD. I'm like all over the place, but I come up with ideas <laughs> faster than most people. And I, I have tons of empathy and that helps me see situations that people can't, other people can't see. I mean, there's been many times in my career where I've come into a meeting and people have been discussing things for 30 minutes and can't find an answer. And I walk in and I give them an answer in like two seconds. Then, and they're like, wow, how did we not see that? You know? And so I have my strengths, but at the same time, then you ask me to really s- execute that for like, a week and I'm going to struggle, right? Because it's just not my forte. But that's where I, I learned uh, to have people that complement my skills so that I can turn it over to Rob and he can just keep the ship moving in the direction it needs to go. But if you asked Rob to come up with crazy ideas as fast as I do, it would take him 10 times as long, right? And so just understanding those strengths. And, you know, actually an interesting side note, another great book, <laughs> if you, if you want to listen to another good book, because there's, a, for a lot of us, like entrepreneurial types, CEOs, a lot of us are ADD. And there's a great book by Mark Patey uh, called Addicts or Millionaires. And it just talks about people who are AD, ADD and how they either basically become an addict or they, or they become millionaires because of the way that we get so intense into things. But it, it was a great book that helped my wife understand me. Okay. I'm literally searching it on audible.com right now because hopefully I don't have to read it and I could just listen to it. But that <laughs> book sounds awesome. Um, What's funny is Mark Patey, I, I know him personally, and he always jokes that there's no ADD person who's ever read his book. <laughs> Um, okay. So I didn't know this is where you're going to go with it. I, you know, I'm on, I don't know, business number 14, right. And cause I've got four going right now and, yeah. uh, you know, the previous 10, I'm kind of two for 10. Right. And yeah. so, uh, and the two, you know, more than made up for the other 10, blah, blah, blah. But I still am not super stoked about that ratio. Okay. Yeah. Um, I am, I am really interested in, because I've made a lot of mistakes in 
whether it's co-founders or just support staff or different people. Um, I'm interested in how, you know, that self-awareness for yourself, what you have done, uh, like what, what does that process look like for you? Or what advice would you have for someone like me who wants to find that complementary personality type there? Yeah. I mean, you need, as you're, I mean, you just need, the more you understand yourself, the easier it is to look and find your, your, your equal opposite, right? Mm-hmm. The person who's going to offset you. And, and so that will be different for everybody. You know, I, I am, a, I love researching stuff. So like, you know, whether it's Meyer Briggs or the strength finders or any of these things, mm-hmm. I, I like understanding personalities and then finding a complementary personality. But, you know, like Rob, my current partner, I've known him for, geez, 18 years. And so I, I had had a lot of experience in watching him do his business over a long period of time. And I thought to myself, you know, this would make a good partner for me. Um, same thing. I mean, if you're hiring a technologist, right? I mean, that's, I'd say that's probably one of the hardest things for a, a company is to hire the technologist. Because like when I think about most CEOs, they can do pretty much everything else in the company. You know, if they needed to step in and do the accounting, they might not do it perfectly, but they could do it. They could step in and do the sales. They could step in and do the marketing, but they can't step in and code the product if they're a software company. And that's that's definitely probably your hardest thing to fill in a company. Um, luckily, because of, you know, my previous life, I had a friend who had worked with me uh, at Omniture and, uh, he had actually moved on and became the CIO of Larry H. Miller Group and then the head of software engineering for Vivint. And then I was finally able to convince him to come on board actually with us just only uh, last year. But, you know, even, even that situation, um, he has a counterpart in our organization because he is very introverted and he is an incredible software architect. Well, we have another gentleman who works side by side with him who's more of the extrovert, loves talking about the product, and he heads software engineering. Um, and, you know, just finding those complementary people for each other so that – because we couldn't expect Dave, who's our CTO, to to do all those same things because it's just not in his, in his wheel. Well, he probably could even do it fairly successfully, but he prefers not to, right? Uh, just like I'm good at a lot of things, but I just don't really want to do them. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting to think about, like you look at what you're doing now with ObservePoint, right? And these online marketing folks who need to have better data to base decisions on, or when they go to a board meeting at their big giant company, corporate America, they want people to take them serious because, you know, it's data that people can actually have trust in. Um, as you think about that relationship there of um, who's doing the presenting and who's doing the gathering and who's doing these things, it really feels like a principle that applies kind of no matter the project, whether it's, you know, getting the data together for the board meeting or, or like you said, starting an entire company. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally true. Well, listen, I know um, one of the other people that uh, we were talking about before the show has had a big impact on you and, and the way you you think about others is your own parents. Can you, do you have any examples of stories of them setting the example for you? Sure. You know, I, I have grown up with a, very fortunately I have wonderful parents and I know a lot of people love their parents, but like, for example, I, I think back on my life 
I'm a pretty mellow person and uh, not that I don't have a lot of energy and I get excited about things, but it's very rare that I would ever raise my voice or do things like that. And a lot of that I learned from my parents. Um, I mean, in my whole life growing up, I think I can only even remember my parents raising their voice once or twice at me. And, um, and I think that's helped me, you know, learn a lot of patience and empathy for people. Um, you know, I've had, I've had people crash high-end sports cars that I've loaned them <laughs> and, and I'm just like, oh, well, I know you didn't mean to do it. You know, it's just life short to ever lose your temper or, um, I just know people never do things really on purpose. Now they might be an idiot and they just, they should have known better because they were doing something stupid. But as I, I always use the, ana the analogy saying like, nobody ever tries to get in an accident. Right. And, and I really definitely learned that a lot from my parents. Um, I, I actually learned quite a bit of that even from, I, I had served a mission for my church and um, my mission president had taught me a lot of, of that too, of patience. You know, and, and of course I've had tons of mentors uh, in my life from, you know, whether it was some of the, the teachers we had at BYU uh, to one of our other great mentors uh, that we had actually was Fraser Bullock. I don't know if you know Fraser. And he helped us a ton at Omniture. A lot of our even board members, you know, were great mentors for us. Um, every, everybody played their role, you know, from my parents kind of helping shape me, my dad t teaching me how to sell. My dad was a salesman for a mortgage company. So, you know, I spent summers out with him, helping him, uh, sell. And actually one of the very first things that wherever I learned how to program, my dad um, had a financial HP calculator. This is back in the 90s, early 90s. And I guess it was like 1990. And I, I would program his calculator for him so that he could just put in like the ratios and stuff to find out how much money somebody could afford to spend on a home. And it's funny, it was like this big hit in his office and he everybody else in the office ended up having me program their HP calculators to do it. <laughs> That's hilarious. But, yeah. So it started, I guess, young doing some basic programming stuff. Although I didn't do it very long, you know, at Omniture, we hired um, a, a great uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Brett Ayer, who was our CTO at Omniture. And it's just, Brett's just a genius. And, he, you know, led us through all of our technology um, life cycle there with with an incredible team under him too. I mean, I don't mean to be, say mean that not everybody else was contributing. We just had an awesome, awesome team. So, you know, um, I feel like there's a, a number of directions I want to talk about that. But the first one is for somebody who has a desire to become more patient. Do you have any exercises that that you think we could try or are there any things that you tell yourself to, to help, you know, conquer yourself and, and maybe temptations to not be patient? To be patient? I'm saying if, if someone wants to become a more patient person, yeah. do you have any ideas on things they can tell themselves or little things they can do to help, you know, conquer the temptations to be impatient? That, that's a hard thing for me because it really does come so naturally for me. Yeah. Uh, but I would think just you know, re again, realizing that people aren't trying to piss you off, <laughs> you know, that, um, they're, they're working hard and that they're, tr they're trying to, you know, help you. Um, 
which I, I realize sometimes doesn't feel like it. Probably the, the place where I get the least patient is actually at the airport. <laughs> I just cannot stand TSA and waiting. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, we do not deserve to be treated like cattle. You know, <laughs> that's the, that's the one place that like pushes my patients to the limit. Yeah. You know, um, I actually feel like, I know you feel like you didn't really answer the question, but I think you did. I think that, um, you think about that viewpoint of assuming malicious intent as yeah. such a trigger of anger. You know, my hero in life is a, a guy. I, I, uh, actually quit being an entrepreneur just to go apprentice under his company, uh, in the consulting world seems Terry Warner, um, wrote this incredible book called bonds that make us free and, and started a company called the Arbinger Institute. And he wrote this book called the Oxford, it's a collection of his papers when he was at Oxford. Um, and his papers called the delusions of anchor. Um, something anger and similar delusions, I think it's called. And he talks yeah. about why is it when somebody smashes into us, you know, in a in a lineup or something, they bump they bump into us too hard, and we look at them just glaring. We're just ticked, right? And we assume that they made us angry. And then as soon as we find out that they were pushed into us, all of a sudden our anger towards them evaporates, and the guy who did the pushing is now the one who is the focus of all our anger. And it's yeah. like. It's like, it's not the act itself. It's our decision that we have decided they harmed us when they could have chosen not to out of like malice or contempt or something. And having that viewpoint, like you said, like nobody's trying to get in an accident. Yeah. All of a sudden, like our, our blaming of them as the fuel for our anger and impatience is, it seems like it would go down. I think a lot of it stems from we all have that friend who drives like an idiot all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And we've told him a million times to like, hey, you should probably drive a little less recklessly. It Sometimes those are the people getting accidents and we think, oh my gosh, I've told you a million times to like not be such an idiot, you know? And I think that <laughs> makes it difficult for some people. Mm -hmm. But actually, this this reminds me of something like when I think about what I hate about like an airport and how they treat you there. It all stems from fear. It stems from those employees at that airport have fear that if they don't do the things the specific way that some rule book mandated, they're going to lose their jobs. Mm. And when I, when I try and run my companies, I try and make sure my employees know that they are completely empowered to make decisions to make things right. So if remember we we all heard about the story about the the Delta pa or the United passenger right who mm -hmm. who got kicked off the plane drug off the plane of course we all think that was horrible and again uh, the reason why a lot of that was horrible was because they weren't empowered to just you know keep offering somebody an amount of money to get off the plane right we all know that they. If they had even probably doubled it, they would have had six more people volunteer to get off the plane. Right? And, and instead, their market cap lost a billion dollars. Yeah, but then I think it regained it all back anyway. It doesn't. <laughs> but but that being said, it still wasn't the right thing well, to still, do. Well, it's still a five. I mean, from a leave the emotional and moral part out of it, it's yeah. a five million or five or six million dollar um, settlement right yeah. there for you know yeah. saving a thousand bucks on a ticket. And then the yeah. human aspect. What's the human cost of what it feels like to tell all your family you work at United and, well, you know, totally. Well, so I actually, I had a, a situation where I was running to the, to get a flight, a Delta flight, and I could see the gate 
And the gate agent looked at me, and it was me and three of my friends. We were, this was back in the Omnisher day. We were running as fast as we could to the gate. She looked at us, wagged her finger, saying no, and closed the door to the plane. Like, who does that? Right now, it's because she's been told we have to have on time chargers. We have to. It's like, seriously, we were talking about waiting 30 seconds for us to like, oh, and then maybe she would have had to refill out one little piece of paperwork, you know, kind of a thing. It's um, but she probably had this initial desire to do you guys a solid. And I don't know. Out of fear for was what was so weird. Yeah. Out of like fear for her job, like you're talking about and the rules then she needs to double down on why she's like ignoring you as a human and well, going I for the rules think... and wagging and wags her finger at you to let you know you're the one who messed up. It's not her shutting yeah, the well, door. Why well, I do think that they think that I think what goes through her head is like, oh, these are these people who think they can just show up so late, you know, which literally does she know I'm actually normally that guy who shows up two hours early because it just gives me anxiety to not be there on time, you know? <laughs> So yeah. anyway, I, I I literally could go on for this entire podcast and just <laughs> I hate about airports. <laughs> okay, so um, as a recap here, because uh, I think this is a great place to end end episode one, and uh, and we'll we'll break have everybody invite back everybody for uh, for part two of the episode. Um, if you were going to sum up the all this stuff we've been talking about for twenty minutes about kind of the. If people only remember one thing from this episode about how they're going to be with their staff and their coworkers and clients, whatever, what, what is that piece of advice? How, how is that? How would you wrap it up succinctly? Well, I think I'd wrap it up and say, remember, it's not just business. It's all personal. Love it. Okay. Please, everyone, tune in to uh, part two of the episode uh, with John that, that will be coming up next. And uh, John, thanks for making time. No problem. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run, and it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors we're pretty excited about it hope you check out blipbillboards.com thanks now is the time to find your color your paint and everything to get started during red white and blue savings at the home depot Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.